Okay, uh, we are in the second to last week on our series on the parables, some of the parables. Uh, And if you would open your Bible to Matthew 22, if you have your Bible, and if you don't, it'll be up here on the screen, or is up here on the screen. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us, that you, um, you pierce us, that you accept us as we are, but you um, bring us and call us on your terms. God, I pray that our hearts will be soft to that, that we would be reminded by your word, chastened by your word, And ultimately, God, called to love by your word. Jesus, we pray that this would happen so that you would be glorified, that your people would grow in joy and delight. We trust you, Jesus. Amen. So this is is one example of a parable that doesn't get a lot of airtime. When I teach survey of the New Testament at Montreat, I I like to spend time in the Gospels pointing out these things that people miss about Jesus. They they kind of just skate by or skirt around or or have never even heard. So last week I I preached on the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. And um, I, you know, cried like a little girl when I, when I, when I spoke of it and that's, that's the, the kind, the stories of Jesus that people like. If, even if they miss the point sometimes. Those are the stories that people like. These are the kind of stories that people are like, not, okay, not comfortable with this version of Jesus. And what I have to say, first of all, is this is not the singular story like this that Jesus tells. He will tell other parables that sound just like this. And he will say things and do things right in line with this. And it's important to remember 
that Jesus was not a person who just stood outside and just lined people up to give them hugs all day. That maybe is the picture of of Jesus' ministry that He just was a big hugger and that's all He did all day. If Jesus was the hugger-in-chief of the ancient Near East, He probably wouldn't have been killed for it. People did not hate hugs so much that they crucified Him for being so cuddly. Jesus had sharp edges to Him. Now, Jesus was also still the person who told the pair of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And He was the person who dwelt with and ate with and indeed hugged people who were seemingly unworthy and unclean. But He's also this Jesus who speaks with pointed words at times and uses often scary imagery So the question that's before us, if we're thinking back to last week and to to the rest of the way we read the Bible, is how do these images fit together? How can the God who tells uh, that the kingdom is like a father who is recklessly generous with his love, how is he also the king of a kingdom where he is, in this parable, the king who is sending armies to burn cities down and throwing people into outer darkness. How can that possibly be the same person? And we'll get there this morning. I hope that you'll see how these things connect. But it's important to understand some things about this parable. Uh, Jesus lives in an honor and shame culture. And that's... it's foreign to us because we don't operate on the same kind of honor and shame currency in our culture uh, like they did. We see any mention of shame as a negative thing always. But in honor and shame cultures, there's a kind of currency that's established where shame is a bad thing, but the presence of shame is not a bad thing because it helps people know how to conduct themselves in society. So we come to this text and things seem way, way over the top. This king, he's just having a party and these people don't want to come. What is the big deal? People don't want to come to my parties ever. So should I be riding in and ready to kill some folk? No. But in Jesus' culture, this was a much bigger deal. Uh, One commentator, Ben Witherington, points out that you have intertestamental literature, books written between the Old and New Testament, that speak specifically of this scenario where a superior, social superior, and a king would certainly be at the top of that pyramid. When they invite you to something like a wedding feast, it is not an invitation that you weigh up and say, "Mm, should I? It's an obligation. And to refuse the obligation is deeply shameful and and besmirches the reputation of the king. It's a transgression socially. So when Jesus is setting up this parable and he's telling this story, his people who are listening, Pharisees, poor people, Gentiles, everybody hears this and understands and sort of gasps 
inwardly like, those people are being really bad to refuse this invitation. Of course, then their refusal is very clear thereafter where they don't just just walk away and go about their business. They then actually kill the people who are giving them the message that they should come to the wedding feast. So the king responds to this shame, to this murder, and he says, fine, I'm going to burn the city down. And he just levels the thing. Then he still has a problem. There's a feast, there's a party for his son, and there's no one in the wedding hall. So what does he say must be done? Go find me some people. So they go to the road, and they get people, and some people are good people, and some people are bad people. Now, when Jesus says, go to the road, he's not just talking about walking down to 70 and going to get people. Roads are bad places. Roads are dangerous places. You don't take a walk down the road just for the heck of it. You don't see people getting in their miles or their steps for their Fitbit just walking down the road. You get on the road to go from A to B and you get off the road and if you don't get accosted or assaulted or robbed on the road, that is a good road trip. Otherwise, stay away from the road. Bad things happen on roads. So he's sending his servants to go to a bad, sketchy, dangerous place and say, hey, who's ever there, just bring them here. It's a kind of reckless approach to filling this wedding hall. So then he does, and he does what kings do, what they do at wedding banquets. Kings... Social superiors, they clothe the people who come into the wedding banquet. It's a common thing to get wedding robes to go into the party. One person has not worn the wedding robe. And so Jesus looks at them, the king looks at them and says, what are you doing? I give everybody these robes. Why are you not wearing your robe? And the guy is speechless. Not because he doesn't know. It's not like he's saying like, ah, I didn't know. Everybody knows. He should be able to look around the room and say, man, everybody's got a uniform in here but me. What's going on? He knows what he's supposed to do. He does not do it. So Jesus then, the king, Jesus says, says, take this man, bind him. And this, the parable kind of dissolves from there. It ceased to be a parable. Throw him in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Few are called, many are called, few are chosen. These are pretty stark scenarios that are given. Jesus is speaking in the first portion of the parable to Israel, who is and has been and continues to reject the God of Israel, who is calling them to his party. People will gather around Jesus and listen to Him and evaluate His claims. And Jesus will be telling them, God has a wedding party for you to be a part of. And there is a spectrum of response mostly going from indifference to outright hatred or antipathy. And in fact, Israel's history is filled with lots of killing of the stewards they come and bring these messages. I was just reading this week in uh, the book of Jeremiah, 
And in Jeremiah's day, for example, Jeremiah is bringing bad news to the people of Israel because things are bad, they're being punished, and God is telling them, you're going into exile in Babylon, you're going to be there a while, you better settle down, settle in, it's going to be a long time before you go home. And these other prophets, false prophets, come in and say, guys, it's going to be about 18 months, two years, tops. Everything is going to be fine. And of course, people have a preference of these two messages. They prefer to hear two years, tops. So they're mad at Jeremiah, and Jeremiah has a, has a friend that also is prophesying and saying, it's going to be a long time. And that friend, he hears that his name has been put on a list that they're mad at him, so he runs away to Egypt from Israel, and they track him down all the way from Egypt. They bring him home, and they kill him. So Israel's story is filled with this kind of example. The stewards who are telling Israel, this is what God wants to do. This is God's way. Come into the wedding party. Those stewards, those prophets, those messengers are often killed. So what's the deal here? How is this wildly generous, extravagantly loving God, who is the God of the prodigal, the God of the wasteful ones, how can He possibly also be the King who rides in in judgment on all of those who do not respond to His invitation? See, in our, our day and time, love and judgment cannot go together. If you have love, you cannot have judgment. And if anyone judges you, they cannot actually love you. In our culture, these things are so far apart, they are considered to be diametrically opposed counter values. So we read these parables and we say, there's got to be an error here. There's got to be a mistake. Somebody else might have, must have written this story. Somebody else must have put this in. Because this cannot be the same person. But in fact, if you open the Bible and you read all the way through it, however you get that done, do it. I, I encourage you to do it little at a time, a lot at a time, read through the Bible, and you'll see that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament alike is constantly affirming and proclaiming His love for His people, and He's constantly telling them that judgment is coming if they, do, if they, do else, if they go to other gods, if they go run elsewhere for worship and love. God will judge them. And how can that possibly be? What's important to do when you are reading the Bible or anything, really, is if you are coming up against something that you just instinctively are repulsed by in your gut, and you, you think that you have a handle on, it's important to stop, to pump the brakes, and to say, is the problem in the text, or is the problem in me? Is the problem what the message is saying? Or am I the one who has something wrong? In this case, I would say that the problem usually is when we run into texts like these and we are repulsed or challenged or we are disquieted, the problem is most likely in us. 
We have been trained by our culture to see this separation between love and judgment. But the Bible will constantly and consistently affirm that the loving God over all the earth is a judging God. And we should want Him to be that way. We should want Him to be this kind of judge. We think that we want love and judgment to be forever separated. We want Him to just be loving without judgment. But you and I have other things inside of us that are telling us that judgment is exactly what we want. For example, I don't know how you read the news or watch the news or listen to the news without feeling a deep desire for a judge. There are terrible, horrible things that happen in the world. Terrible, terrible things. Sections of crime from any section of the penal code, they they are thrown on our screens constantly telling us that terrible things happen in the world. And even when the perpetrator, the criminal, the one who has done the thing has been arrested, we've caught them, we finally got them, something in us tells us this is still not enough. For example, 10 years ago, our financial system melted down through people's financial lives into ruin. People lost jobs. People lost their retirement funds. People lost a very rosy view of the world that I don't know that we'll ever get back. And you have guys that get caught like Bernie Madoff who have just recklessly and selfishly spent other people's wealth. And he was already rich when he did it. It was just pure greed and selfishness and things getting away from him. He was already rich when he did it. We caught him. He's been brought to justice and he's in jail. And so what? Who cares? This guy is in jail. People's lives are ruined. And what good does it do that this guy is in jail? Nothing. It seems like nothing has been done the terrible wrong that he's done in the world, not repaired. People's retirement funds, not restored. Old people working at Walmart because of this guy. And if you don't read stories like that and say, I want justice, I want this man to be judged, then something is wrong with you. Things happen in the world all the time, every day, probably to you, that deserve judgment. And some part of us deep in our guts is hoping that somebody out there is keeping score and will bring judgment to those people. My wife was telling me how she, a couple days ago, was in the car, probably with our kids, merging onto the interstate, and that she wasn't being let in. You know, it's her right to come in that she is supposed to be yielded to. 
And there are lines of cars behind the car that is next to her. There is space up ahead. It should be a pretty simple scenario. She can't swerve over to the far lane to to get through. She's speeding up and this person is not letting her in, intentionally going next to her the whole way. And at the end of the, the allotted space, my wife has to slam on her brakes and stop. And as she's doing it, the person who has intentionally not let her in is smiling as she goes by. That deserves judgment. My wife found some way to let it go. I have not. That deserves judgment. Somebody should speed up and catch up to her and tell her exactly what she has done wrong. And I see you, and I will report you. I will haunt you until you are paid for this. That lady deserves judgment. We want there to be a judge in the world. That's what I'm telling you. And that desire for judgment is real and good and true. Because when evil is done, when terrible things are done, those things are real. They are not just category mistakes. They are not just boo-boos from a boo-boo list. They are not just breaking of rules. That That is catapulting evil into the world and it wrecks things and it harms things and it breaks things. And we want justice. And what the Bible will tell you again and again and again is that God is a God of justice. And He is the one that brings the judgment that you're longing for. Now, what terrifies us, what we don't like about that news is that God might judge us. That's what we don't like. We want the lady in the car or Bernie Madoff or any other person, we want God to judge that fool. But just don't, just don't judge me. Bring me home. Give me the hugs. Don't give me sharp, pointy-edged word Jesus when it comes to me. That's what Israel has done for its whole life to this point. Judge those other nations. Don't judge me. And that's what happens here in the parable. Is they do not accept the invitation of God, the King, on the King's own terms. And in fact, actively oppose the invitation. And when that happens, there are real and true ramifications in the world. And the king is not unjustified by writing in in judgment. He is, in fact, giving the people exactly what they have earned by their rebellion and their treason. But the king is still the king who wants to fill his party. He still wants people to party with him. He still wants his son's wedding banquet hall to be filled. He's still the king that's throwing a party. But the same problem is encountered from a different angle. Where he doesn't tell any of the people who come into the party, you know what? Just do whatever you want. Wear whatever you want. The party is on your terms. He tells the people, If you want to be at the party, 
Please come, respond to the invitation, and now be clothed for the party. Be ready for the party. And almost everybody at the party does, except this one person, for whatever reason, that says, you know what, I want to be at the party, and I don't want to be dressed for the party. I'll have the party on my terms. There is no misunderstanding for this man here. He knows exactly how he should be dressed. He knows how he should be clothed. And he says, I will be the king of this party. I will not just be an, be an invitee. I will be the king of this party. And I will determine the dress code. And the king says, this is not how it works. This is my party. You come on my terms. Now get out. And he's cast out into darkness in judgment. Now, why? What is going on with the, the clothing and the particular demands of this king? This actually is the state of things. You don't get to come to God on your terms. That's what we want. That's what we, we believe. That's how we think things should work. Not just that we can come to Him, but that we can come to Him on our terms. God should be the way that I determine God should be. When you and I live by that motto, what we are doing is we are just deceiving ourselves enough to say, to, to not hear what we're really saying, which is, I want to be God. If God is exactly the way that you want Him to be all the time, God is not God. You are God. You are worshiping yourself. You are seeking after yourself. You want life with God on your terms as if you are God. And that cannot work. You and I who crave judgment but don't want it, who give ourselves over to judging others but don't want to be judged, you and I who are living lives that actually do deserve judgment should not be the ones dictating the terms of life with God to God. Our compass is so screwed up and so broken that we cannot expect that walking into God's party on our terms will actually allow us to engage and celebrate at the party like we would wish. God is going to insist again and again and again that you come on His terms because He is the Creator King. He is the one who has set the whole thing up. He knows how things are supposed to work. And if you are operating on your terms in a different way, you are playing the same game by a different set of rules. And when that happens, you lose. 
God is not arbitrary. He is not other. He's not just screwing with you. He's saying, I have made you for me. I have made you for this life. And if you are doing something else, I'm not just throwing you in another category. You are actually going against the way that you were made. You are going away against the way of life. You have to come on my terms. Now look at what he doesn't say. He never says to anyone who actually ends up in the hall, you are not good enough. You've come from too bad a place. You've come from the wrong side of the road. And I don't want you here. He never, he never says that you're too stuck up. He never says that you are too stained by sin. He never says that to any of these people. The qualification for being at this party is merely accepting the king's robes. You don't have to be good enough to come to party with Jesus. But you do have to put on the king's robes to be at the party. You don't have to be the perfect person. You don't have to be the person that has never merited any judgment. You do have to be the person who accepts what God provides for you and says, this is the only thing I can wear to the party. The New Testament will use this kind of language very clearly and say, you must be clothed in the righteousness of God. You must put on the clean robes that Jesus has provided for you. So this, this parable serves as a warning to two kinds of people about the nature of the kingdom. One, do not reject the king's invitation. Invitation is not just bonus, it is also obligation. The king, your king, whether you acknowledge him or not, has invited you to come party with him. You are obligated to respond. Do not be like the people in the parable and dismiss him by your ambivalence, by your meh, maybe later. That is a dangerous place to be. The other person who should hear a word of warning and respond is those of us who come to the party hall, who come to church, who come to small group, who play the religious game, and never accept that God intends to clothe you with His righteousness, but instead just give themselves over to hanging out with cool people, being a good and religious and moral person but never reaching out and accepting in faith what God has offered to you. That is a dangerous place to be. Church attendance and participation is not the basis on which you are qualified to be at the party. It is what God has done and won for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is it. You are meant to hear this parable and be sobered. 
to be reminded that there are real consequences for the way that you and I live your life. But this God, this King who judges like this is still the Father who looks to the road and waits for you to come home. If you have rejected His invitation time and time and time again, you have not reached the ends of God's mercy and love towards you. If you have wandered off and said, I don't want to be a part of this party, and you have rejected that offer again and again and again, time is not up for you. And you have not gone so far or or plunged so deep in the muck that you cannot come to the party. The Father still looks out to the road and will run to greet you. And if you have been a a churchgoer, a good person, a religious person, and you know that you have been coming to this party on your own terms, clothed in your own clothes, in your own goodness, God is still the God who rejoices in finding one of His lost sheep. He is still the one that turns over the furniture of your life to find you rolled away underneath some piece of furniture in the dark corners of the room. He is the God who we long for when we long for justice. And He is the Father that we long for when we are afraid of that justice coming to find us. He is better than we could hope for. He is everything that we long for. The party is where you want to be. Today, stop going to do your other thing. Stop responding to Him indifferently. Stop pretending with Him and coming to Him on your terms. Come to the King's party. Let Him clothe you in His righteousness and be with Him now and forever. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are not like us. That You are not made in our image. That You are bigger and freer and wilder than us. And we stand before You and we cower in, in fear. You are uncontrollably, powerfully good. And yet, God, let us delight and take joy in You because You are better than we could have hoped for. God, we thank You that judgment is not what we have to have from You. That You have invited us into Your party and We have rejected You a thousand times and You are patient and kind and merciful. You have a bounty of mercy for us. God, I pray for those who have treated You indifferently, who have spurned Your invitation. I pray, God, that they would turn around and come home and come into the party that You've made for them. And God, I pray for all of those who come to church every week wanting the benefits of your goodness but wanting on their terms. God, I pray that you will humble them and chasten them and relieve them of the burden of constantly trying to game the system the way that they want it. Jesus, you are so good to us. I 
thank you for seeking us out, coming and finding us, and wanting to give us the very best that we could hope for. You are so good, God. We thank you. Amen.